Before we go any farther in this episode, I just want to give listeners a warning that we're going to be dealing with some sensitive and potentially triggering topics about mental health and suicide. It is a very challenging topic, and if you don't feel comfortable listening in, that's totally fine, but we just wanted to start what is a very difficult conversation. Hey everyone, I'm Amigal Yakber, and this is See Something, Say Something. So, a couple weeks ago, BuzzFeed News reporter Hannah Alam published this very nuanced and thoughtful piece on the rise in suicide rates in American Muslim communities. And I've been wanting to talk about this for a while, and Hannah's reporting, I think, is a good start to the conversation. Over the past six months, there have been a lot of high-profile suicides like Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade. It's a very traumatizing experience, and Muslim communities are not always equipped to deal with it. And I really thought Hannah's piece gave me some tools for how we as a community can start thinking about addressing all of the trauma that affects people struggling with mental health, their families, and their communities. Also, I just want to note that There's a lot of nuance in this conversation that just can't be covered in a half-hour podcast. And there's a lot more information available in Hannah's piece, so I highly recommend you read it. So joining me today is Hannah Alam. She is the BuzzFeed News reporter who published that piece. Hi, Hannah. Hi. And Mona Haider was also one of the people interviewed in Hannah's piece. She is a poet, rapper, chaplain, and activist, and she's in the studio with us today. Hey, Ahmed. What's up? Hey, Mona. How are you? Good, good. And you also, which we're going to talk about later, have released a new song which deals with your personal experience of the suicide of one of your friends. So we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Hannah, for people who haven't read your piece, can you tell us about like what are some of the mental health risk factors that are affecting Muslim communities today? Yeah, it was kind of about two parts to the suicide conversation. And the first part, of course, is prevention and awareness and what's left to do there, what can, what can be done better there. And about this kind of really a movement of American Muslims who are trying to break the stigma around mm-hmm. mental health, seeking treatment and just awareness that a lot of other communities have also dealt with. It's not just among Muslims, but you know, this is a community that has seen a rise in suicides in um, in recent years, and that's in line with national statistics that mm. show uh, rising suicide rates here in the United States. So some of the factors were the, a, a lot of the same factors that the broader community shares, you know, financial, relationship troubles, um, of course, mental health, as we've talked about. Um, and then there were some that were more specific to especially sort of maybe immigrant Muslim communities that were kind of um, cultural differences and family and generational problems um, that had to do around, you know, maybe culture and religion in some cases. But, you know, for the most part, they deal with a lot of the same problems and um, and struggles that, that anybody else deals yeah. with. So you mentioned that suicide rates are rising amongst Muslims. Um, are there any available statistics around that? That's one of the problems I keep hearing from people who study this issue is that there there is no central clearinghouse for these numbers. So the best they can do is get estimates from 
um, Muslim funeral homes, Muslim mortuaries around the country. And even then you're getting an incomplete uh, toll because a lot of the families conceal the manner of death, the cause of death um, when it's suicide. And so, no, anecdotally, we know from uh, from imams, from clerics and from, you know, community mental health professionals that it's rising. But unfortunately, there's just not firm numbers to study. So Mona, you were a chaplain at NYU for the past year. Can you tell us about what some of the students were coming to you with, some of the problems that you sort of like helped them work through and how you thought about how to help young Muslim folks right now? I think we have a crisis of isolation and loneliness. And I think loneliness triggers a lot of other emotions that people don't know what to do with. So I had a lot of students who, you know, had a lot of self-esteem issues, Mm. a lot of self-worth issues, issues of not feeling valued or valuable by the world. And a contributing factor of a lot of that is um, racism, is Islamophobia, is uh, bigotry and hatred that they face in in their daily lives uh, through microaggressions and actual violence and you know, like we were dealing with an issue at the school of, uh, at the business school where um, Muslim students were even being targeted by um, faculty. Wow. To have to deal with that kind of thing as a young person and not to know what to do with it. And then to come to maybe your chaplain because you don't know who else to go to. Maybe you feel comfortable with um, a, a spiritual director and not a, a, a counselor, you know, a therapist. And so I would see a lot of students who maybe needed more than spiritual direction and they needed something like somebody to walk them down to the wellness center and to say, like, you actually need to sit with a therapist and to talk about what you're what you're telling me um, with, with a trained professional hmm. because— this isn't an issue that I can necessarily help you with as much as I would like to. I'm not trained to, you know, deal with mental wellness hmm. and mental illness. And but I am trained to see the signs and the markers and right. to to help somebody see that maybe they need more help than I can give them. Right. And Hannah, a lot of your reporting is sort of looking at how Ways in which like mosques, imams, Muslim communities, Muslim community organizations are or are not equipped to deal with when young folks come to them struggling. Can you tell us a little bit about how that process played out in your reporting? Yes, that was the sort of the stigma around it, both from talking about it on the awareness front to the dealing with it in the aftermath of a suicide. Uh, Those were both really central themes that I found even while reporting, I mean, even families who had had um, sort of the best experience that one could hope for in such a tragedy, meaning an imam who was responsive, who Mm -hmm. didn't have an issue burying or praying for the deceased, support from family members in the community at large, you know, even those who had had that kind of experience were still reluctant to talk about it because the stigma is so deep and it's just so hard a subject. And what Muslim mental health practitioners, professionals would tell me is that they'd go and visit mosques and um, Islamic centers and just communities after a suicide and find them really ill-equipped to talk about what happened, to have these open, frank conversations. And You know, one of the things that I really sort of maybe I'd heard, but I really it was underscored to me in the reporting was that suicide is contagious and that if you have a death like that in one of these communities, 
there are chances that the risk factor goes up. And so that's a really a time to, to pay close attention to, um, to the people in that community and to look for those signs. Right. So in this piece, there's this one story that really struck me where a professor of law at Rutgers, Adnan Zulfikar, is with a visiting scholar at Swarthmore. And after the talk, these three young women come up to the scholar and they basically have this level of guilt. You know, their friend has taken his life and they buried him. They gave him all the rituals and they feel this immense guilt, like, are we allowed to pray for his soul? Was it right that we buried him? And I thought the scholar's response is really interesting. Well, he was, yeah, I was there with the, a scholar, a visiting scholar from Pakistan. And yeah. so there was this moment where he's wondering, you know, what is he going to say? And you can, you know, he said these women were just beside themselves and, you know, their voices were cracking and they were tearing up and they're talking about, I mean, it was a real crisis of conscience and of, of faith for them about whether they were correct in praying for their friend who had um, killed himself. And here comes this uh, scholar from Pakistan who tells them, no, we must always have compassion. And that needs to be the first right. you know, response. And he said that there was just this sort of like palpable sigh of relief you know, this feeling of relief when they heard that and the weight, a weight lifted from them. And so that was a really um, interesting story. But I have to say, I mean, I heard a lot of stories like that, but I also heard several stories where that didn't go that way. Mm. And there were families who were denied burial, who had to call mosque after mosque after mosque until they found someone willing to take uh, their loved one to put in the ground right. to give some sort of prayer to. And so that was something that, um, that in addition to the sudden and violent loss of a loved one, then they're dealing with this sort of rejection and stigma in the community. And it becomes this real like double tragedy. Right. Yeah, no, the f impact on the family is so unbelievably hard. And I've, you know, I've seen that and I've heard those stories. Um, suicide is a particularly difficult thing in my experience. You know, uh, like a friend of mine actually took her life about six months ago, and I almost wouldn't have found out if it hadn't been publicized in a in a like on like Facebook, basically, because it's so hard for people to like accept the way the community will respond sometimes. And, you know, it was just like showed me how difficult it can be to for everybody. You know, it's hard for the family. Sure. It's hard for friends. It's hard for the community. So I'm I, if you guys are comfortable, like what what are some of have you had any personal experiences like that? Mona, I know you've recently released this song that is about a close friend of yours who took their life. And that's something you're still grappling with today. Can you tell us about that experience? I know it's very hard. So, you know, <laughs> like, take your time. Yeah, it is. It is really hard. And, and Hannah and I talked about it for her story. And ultimately, my friend's family decided that it wasn't something that they were comfortable sharing, you know, kind of the, the idea of whose story is it to share and whose mm -hmm. story is it to tell. And, um, you know, I feel like my life was really impacted by um, losing my friend in a way that I almost can't explain in words because it really changed the entire trajectory of my life. When I had to step back from my life as it was living in Flint, Michigan um, at 23 years old and kind of having to just say, I need to start living my life 
really, truly and authentically the way that I have always wanted to live and stop allowing fear to debilitate me and, and stop me from doing what I've always wanted to do. And my friend's passing caused me to go and live off grid for three years and caused me to move to a mountaintop in New Mexico where there was no running water and it was a solar eco spiritual community. And like, like, how do you like, it's almost like a crazy thing to do, but I had to do it in a lot of ways because the alternative was not being alive anymore. Hmm. And I think I have a lot of compassion with people who struggle with um, questions of self-worth and, and valuing yourself because I struggle with that as well. And I definitely ask myself those questions all the time. And one of the things that I think people don't realize is that self-harm is a form of violence. You know, like it is a form of violence. It's just violence against yourself. And we're so quick to say like we're anti-violent, we're, you know, we're for justice, but we have to be for justice and anti-violent with ourselves as well. And I feel like that's been one of my roles as a chaplain is to really do that work with young people and to say like your life is valuable mm. and what is your gift? Like let's sit together and talk and like I want to hear your heart out. And I want to hear what your soul is here to do in the world, because there is something that your soul is here to do that no other soul is here is here to do that work. And so let's sit together. Maybe nobody ever sat with you like that and just like has sat heart to heart and listened to your heart. And, and you know, did anybody ever invite you to speak your truth? And did anybody ever invite you to tell your story and to make you feel seen and heard mm -hmm. and so, you know, I think dealing with my own friend's passing definitely led me down the path of greater compassion for others and for myself. So I'm curious, Hannah, what, what are some of the stories you were seeing coming around when a suicide impacts a Muslim community in America? So uh, some of the stories were, I mean, actually very familiar to me, even from growing up. And um, although I didn't have, I, I knew people who had killed themselves. I didn't know Muslims who had killed themselves, but I'd definitely been raised with that idea that suicide is haram. Suicide is haram. That is, you know, it's the ultimate denial of faith. God has a plan for you and you interrupt that plan. That's, that's, you know, um, the worst thing you can do, you know, almost. And so, I, I was familiar with that idea. So to explore that as a reporter, I was hearing stories where that was used in a way, you know, there were definitely people who were calling for a better, more nuanced, more sophisticated way of talking about it rather than just suicide is haram and that's where we leave it, but to explore mental health, to look at this debate that, by the way, has been going on among Islamic scholars since early days of Islam. Mm. And, um, you know, I had one um, scholar, um, Adnan Zulfikar, who was telling me about, you know, showed me um, examples of this debate from the Middle Ages, you know, where they're having that same debate over whether, you know, are you, if someone takes their own life, is that, you know, an act of someone who is rational and saying, can it be excused? Can it, you know, and so those are all the same debates that are, um, you know, that are going on today um, from the theological perspective, then there's just the care perspective of, you know, 
whatever your theological view on it, there's a family here left behind that family needs to be cared for in a sensitive way. They've gone through a loss and, you know, how they view their own Mm -hmm. faith and the Muslims around them can be impacted by the treatment that they get in, in the aftermath of such a tragedy. And then there's the third way of sort of talking about it, which, which I did hear a lot. And that was the deterrent factor of having it, you know, considered such a, a huge sin in Islam was actually a deterrent factor for a lot of people. And some even told me, some people who didn't make it into the story because they didn't want to share their story publicly, but I had a lot of conversations that didn't make it in to the piece. And, you know, people said, look, the only reason I'm alive is because I didn't want this huge sin. Um, and so yeah. I think there's a lot of talk about how do you kind of blend those that, you know, you take the deterrent factor of, you know, uh, of it being considered, you know, just don't think of that as an option in your religion. There's a plan for you. You know, there's, there's that, but also, you know, talking about the science and the developments and the, and the different way that different things we know now about mental illness and how suicide works and the effects that it has and kind of, you know, finding some better blueprint for communities dealing with this. Right. You were going to say something, Mona. I was just going to say, it's so crazy that we have these leaders and clerics saying things like, you know, we can't pray over these people. We can't bury them. It really triggers me because if our communities were doing their job of supporting people and making people feel seen and heard and loved and valued, would we have the crisis we're dealing with? And I'm left with the answer of, of we wouldn't. If our leaders, if our leadership was really getting with the times and dealing with the issues of the day instead of glorifying and romanticizing some distant past about the glory days of Islam and Muslims and remember when Muslims invented whatever, right? Like we're so, it kills me because then you have a community of people who say things like, if only you prayed more, if only you put your hijab back on, which I heard at my friend's funeral. Hmm. If she had just put her hijab back on and girls take this as a lesson to make sure you wear your hijabs. Like that's not how that works, dude. And there are to be fair, I mean, there are definitely, well, Mona is among them, you know, people who are trying to force that conversation and trying to change it. Hmm. Yeah, it's definitely a slow process and it's dealing with it's a cultural and religious minefield in a lot of ways. And also just for anybody, a sensitive thing to talk about. And, but, you know, they're doing that. There, there's some moves toward that. And the, the Family Youth Institute has put out this new booklet and they're trying to do imam trainings. Uh, I know some of the other groups are trying to put together more awareness campaigns, these societies and associations for Muslim mental health professionals. Suicide's always a topic now at their annual mm-hmm. gatherings. Um, so, yeah, they're up against a lot, but there are some people trying to change it. Right. So, Muna, I want to hear also about this song that you've released recently, Suicide Doors, which is a entirely about this topic and one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you. Let's hear a quick clip of that. Middle of a crisis, yet we left her alone. No passenger to listen, had to drive on her own. Blood on her hands, she was rotting on chrome. Maybe the road she was on was too close to your home. 
Daddy at the holiday. She was never meant to stay. We get the keys and lift the way. She hit the block with the fresh pipes, man, and no She opened up the suicide doors. I'm looking for a way out. So can you, like, quickly tell me, like, what are some of the conversations you're trying to open with this song? I'm trying to open up the whole conversation. I mean, we have so much work to do um, as a society and as a smaller Muslim society. Uh, This topic and other topics are so taboo, and it's almost, like, scary to talk about it. And so I'm just like, hey, like, why not do something that they already think is haram and use that to talk about something else that's scary? And so far, the response has been really amazing. And people are just like, I'm so glad you're talking about this. I thought I was the only one thinking about this stuff. I thought I was the only one struggling with this stuff. And, you know, in in the song, I say, even though we follow teachings, she's the one who gave the lesson. You know, like we call ourselves Muslims and then it takes some tragedy to wake us up to our Islam. It takes some kind of like jolting moment to like remind us that we're here for more than just like for you to become a doctor or a lawyer and to make some money and to get a car and to like have the life that your parents wanted you to have. Not that that stuff is bad. Like, that stuff is good, but, like, what is the greater value and purpose of our lives? What, Like, what are we living for? And I feel like, for me, the song is a chance to say that all of our lives are valuable and important. And you have to recognize, we have to recognize that we are more than just these bodies. Right. This has been very helpful and I think, like, a very difficult conversation. And I appreciate both of you for going to this really difficult place and opening up that conversation. But I also want to know about you to how you, how do you guys take care of yourselves when you, all the stuff seems so hard? What is making you happy today, Hannah? My son, Bilal, he always makes me happy. And, uh, but I, I have to say like all the stories that I heard from parents and everything, yeah, sure. It takes a toll on you and it, just makes me hope that all these changes that we're talking about as far as this conversation about mental health and community care and everything that, you know, that he grows up with a a very different idea of what that looks like. And I think, and I think he will. Yeah. How about you, Mona? What's getting you through the day? I try to give myself the same advice that I've given to my students um, in my work as a chaplain. And that is to say, put away your phone and really be with your people. Hmm. Be with your friends, um, be with your community. And if you don't have people, try to find people. I've really had to put away my phone. Recently, I unfollowed everybody on Instagram. Hmm. And I can honestly say that it has contributed to my mental health because suddenly I use Instagram to go to people's pages when I think about them, Hmm. when I want to connect with them and not just because they've shared something. You know, and it's given me more intentionality um, with my social media use. And and I would say limiting, not that social media is bad, but that it shouldn't control us. It shouldn't control our minds. We shouldn't feel compelled every time we pick up our phone. Suddenly we find ourselves on Instagram or Twitter and we we don't really know how we got there. And honestly, meditation, just sitting, stillness, there's, there's an art 
to stillness and solitude and silence. Um, and it's a lost art. And I would say find your local meditation space where people gather to meditate because it's so much more beautiful and so much easier in community. And often you find these spaces and they're just safe spaces. They're safe havens. And uh, you meet people. Um, you connect with people who are really cool. And the last thing I would say is is because I'm Muslim, my spiritual tradition offers me a lot of sustenance and happiness and joy. And I get a lot out of my my spiritual tradition where I, you know, have a set dhikr, a set litany that I have been prescribed for me from a teacher that honestly on a bad day, if I sit and I get into it, you know, I feel the shift. I feel it move my heart. It moves me into a place of greater wellness and, and it, you know, like that's why it exists because it's it's like medicine. It's it's a healing balm for our aching hearts. Right. Yeah. For me, I mean, I similarly. Yeah, Ahmed, what do you do? Yeah. <laughs> you should have a podcast. Um, I, you know, it's actually interesting because recently I feel like I have written about my troubled relationship with prayer in the past. Um, but recently, even if I'm feeling down, I do decide to like try to remember to pray occasionally and then I don't expect anything out of it. But it does generally actually like it's like helps a little bit, um, I think, and it does calm me. And the other thing that I do is I um, I mean, it doesn't solve like long term problems necessarily, but it does like help. It's a soothing it's, balm. It centers a little bit. And the other thing is cooking for people I love. I've been doing a lot of that this year and that has been really nice. So you can find Mona's song, Suicide Doors, wherever you find music. And you can find Hannah Alam's piece on mental health and suicide in the Muslim communities on BuzzFeed.com. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Ahmed. This episode is produced by Megan Dietry, Agarana Shishagre, Julia Ferlin, and me. Additional production support from the Pod Squad. Our music is by the Caminas. Find them at caminas.bandcamp.com. You can follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find me on Twitter at RadBrownDads. Email us at something at BuzzFeed.com. You can find my writing also at BuzzFeed.com. Leave us a review on iTunes so more people can find us. I'm Amadel Yakber. Thanks for listening. Before we go, I just want to stress, if you or someone you know needs help, please try to talk to someone. Hannah's reporting highlighted some really good faith-based organizations doing work that you can reach out to. There's the Khalil Center, which does have a helpline, which is at 855-5-HELP-KC. That's 855-543-5752. There's also Nasiha, which you can find online at nasiha.org. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. Other international suicide helplines can be found at befrienders.org. And we will also link to all of that in the show's description with websites and phone numbers.